0: morning again thanks chris for reading that i just want to give my official congratulations to andrew for completing the half marathon even though he isn't here but he may listen to this took me 2 years to do the 8 week fi- uh, couch to 5k program on the on the, the bbc app so i admire him for doing that half marathon uh, that's quite quite an achievement so we're continuing our series in acts and uh, we're in the middle of this chapter, chapter 13, which Chris has just read to us. And as I was, I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what, what is the, this whole message that Paul gives? What's it leading up to? And really, I want, I want to propose that what Paul is saying here and what applies to us today is that God's grace requires a response. God's grace requires a response. If you've ever seen a musical Les Miserables, or Les Mis, as they like to call it in our horrible English, French. Um, I I haven't, but I've read the book. The main character has just got out of prison and is is taken in by a bishop of the town where he was at because no one else would have him. And his way of repaying this bishop's kindness is to steal all the bishop's nice stuff to go and sell it and get money. And he's caught as he's trying to do this but the bishop actually steps in and says, no, no, it was a gift from me to him. And so the man is not arrested, he's set free, and he carries on. But the bishop makes him promise that because of the kindness he's shown him, he makes him promise to live an upright life from then on, to no longer go into crime. And although the rest of the book is very long and has lots of further tragedies, as only a Frenchman could imagine, it, this character actually stays true to his promise. He doesn't go back to a life of crime. The grace the bishop showed him required a response. And I I want to say this morning that God's grace, which we often talk about as free and unmerited and all the rest of it, actually requires a response. We can't just accept God's grace and leave it at that. We must respond to it. And I think this is what Paul is working up to as he speaks in his passage. So let's try and see how that works out and fill in the picture a bit. So last week, uh, Roger took us through this this moment in the church's history where the Holy Spirit sets apart Paul and Barnabas to go out on mission to the Gentile world specifically, not content just to spread out from Jerusalem and Judea through persecution, but to actually set off into the Gentile world. And after a successful campaign in Cyprus, they leave the island and they sail over just towards what's one day Turkey to this place called Paphos, which is a bit upriver now we don't know what happened there but they don't stay there some people think that's where Paul got sick because when we read in Galatians we find out that Paul is received by the Galatians partly because of his sickness and he carries on into the area of Galatia to this town Antioch Pisidian Antioch as it says in the NIV and this was a a center of the region had a large Jewish colony so it's no surprise that going there they find a Jewish synagogue that they can go along to and as they sort of do this, we read just very briefly that John, who'd been with them since Jerusalem, leaves and goes back home. He's the first case of a missionary that heads back home because it's too tough. And uh, we'll find out more about that in Luke 15, so uh, Acts 15. Sorry, So I'll leave that to the person speaking on that that week. So they arrive in this town. They find the Jewish synagogue. And as is their custom, they go in and listen. And there's a reading, which is normal process. By that time in the synagogues they divided up the law which was the first five books and the prophets which for them included the historical books. So they divided them into weekly readings. So they would cover all the law in a year and all the prophets including most of our historical books that we have in our the way we've arranged the Old Testament. So they would work their way through every year all that material. So it would be quite a long reading. Of course we don't know what they read but we may get some hints from what Paul quotes later on. And then the normal pattern after those readings was that someone would stand up and give a word of exaltation, just like we've done today. So Chris is our uh, rabbi reading it, and then there's a speaker comes out and speaks. And probably because they would have recognized that Paul and Barnabas were trained speakers. Barnabas was a Levite, remember? Paul had studied under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. I'm sure those kind of introductions had been made, and they were looking forward eagerly to see what these learned men who'd studied and been based in Jerusalem, would come and share with them. And Paul basically gives a speech that we can divide into three parts. The first, he, he starts each part by addressing the audience. We see verse 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God. He introduces it and then he talks about Israel's history in this first part all the way up to verse 25-25 leading up to jesus israel's history leads up to jesus then the next section verse 26 down to verse 37 he introduces it saying brothers children of abraham and you god-fearers and explains that god's promises to israel are fulfilled in the resurrection of jesus and then he finishes in the last section verse 38 41 again addressing them my brothers therefore my brothers And he says, this is where you must respond to what I've been saying. God's grace requires a response. So let's look more closely how Paul does this. We obviously can't go through verse by verse. And Trish will will quickly cut me off if I try that. But we need to unpack it a bit more. So let's look at the first section, verses 16 down to verse 25. We read that Paul addresses them, as I've said. Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God. And in that synagogue that day, there were the Jews who belonged by birth, were part of the Jewish nation. There were God-fearers, Gentiles who worship God, as the NIV calls them. And there were also proselytes, as we'll see later on. People, Gentiles who'd actually taken the step of circumcision and fully following the Jewish law and wanting to become Jews in that sense. So here were a group of people who knew the law and were eagerly seeking to hear what God had to say for them. And Paul starts with what was a well-known summary of God's dealings with the people of Egypt. It's not something he made up. It's, you can see similar things in, for example, Deuteronomy 26, where they're to recite when they bring their sacrifices, how God has dealt with them through uh, the history of Israel. And so Paul draws on this summary, and he shows that God's work God is at work graciously throughout the history of Israel. We're very wrong if we think that the Old Testament was just about the law, though the law came in at that point, and then the New Testament is grace. God's grace is always at work through the history of Israel and through the history of mankind. Let's see how how that comes here. The God of the people of Israel, verse 17, chose our fathers. God graciously chose them. The the Jews, as part of their history, were reminded, Deuteronomy 7, that God didn't choose them because they were a great and special nation. He chose them out of his love. And in fact, when they were bringing the sacrifices, they were to say, our father was just a wandering Aramean, nobody special, when God chose Abraham. God graciously chose them. Then he prospered them in Egypt, and we saw through the summer how God used Joseph to preserve his people and make them a great nation in Egypt. Carrying on in verse 17, it says, with mighty power, or as it literally says, with an uplifted arm, he lifted them out of that country. He, took, he led them out of that country. You know, after several days of doing DIY and painting and scraping, I've realized I've got a puny right arm. Now, For those of you who do that regularly, I admire you. But God's arm is not limited. He doesn't get tired. And Paul here is quoting very directly Exodus 6.6 which says, God would bring them out from the people of from the nation of Egypt with an uplifted arm, and God's arm is described as powerful and not too short to save. Isaiah 59:1. Then we read that God either endured their conduct, or if your Bible is like mine, it has a footnote saying some manuscripts say God cared for them, which I think is a better reading. God graciously cared for them through the wilderness that actually quotes directly from Deuteronomy 1 verse 31, particularly in the way it's in the Greek Old Testament, which is what they would have been reading here. It says, in the desert, this is Deuteronomy 1 you saw how the Lord your God carried you or nurtured you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. God graciously brought them out of Egypt, graciously carried them through the wilderness into the promised land. And he finishes off, verse verse 19, talking about how God graciously gave them that inheritance, the land of Canaan, and then says in verse 20, all this took about 450 years. So he's given them this mini summary of the first half of Israel's history, God's gracious acts at work. Then he jumps to the judges, how God gave them the judges until the time of Samuel the prophet, and verse 21 and 22, he talks about Saul being appointed king but them being removed because he wasn't found faithful. And finally, this figure, King David, being the leader that God had appointed. And it says that actually he raised up David as king. And Paul is doing that, even though he doesn't use those words in the NIV, Paul is going to play on that because he is later going to say Jesus was raised up by God to be the promised savior. So David foreshadows Jesus because he was raised up. Then he foreshadows Jesus because He was a man after God's own heart, verse 22, who would do God's will completely. He will do everything I want him to do. And verse 23 goes on to say, from this man's descendants, this David who I've raised up, who's a man after my own heart, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. This is the culmination of the story of Israel. God raising up Jesus, the Savior, as he promised. That's what all of Israel's history has been leading up to, this moment of Jesus' coming. And as we look through that mini-summary that Paul gives, we find out that it is always God acting. It is never at human initiative. God chose our fathers. God prospered them. God cared for them. God gave them a land. God gave them judges. God gave them Saul. God raised up David. God brought the promised Savior. This story of Israel is God's story. And Paul draws on these gracious dealings of God to show how everything is leading up to this moment when God's grace would be fully revealed in Christ. Titus 2.11 says, The grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. John reminds us in his gospel that Jesus came full of grace and truth. So that's the first part of Paul's message, drawing on the history of Israel all the way up to David. But he also carries on talking about John the Baptist and Jesus. I seem to have lost my place, which happens. Yeah, skipped over him slightly. All this was leading up to Jesus, and he was so important. Sorry, just jumping back to verse 24, that before he came, God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way. And we read about John the Baptist that even though in the Jewish tradition you couldn't make a servant untie your shoes, that was not allowed by the, the, the way the rabbis taught. You were not allowed to make a servant do that menial job. It was too menial. John said, I'm not even worthy to do that because Jesus was coming who was so much greater, this descendant of David. And so we've moved to this point where Jesus has come, and now the next part of Paul's sermon, if you like, will be talking about what happened to this promised savior. Now, if you are putting yourself in the in the place of this audience, these Jews, God-fearers, converts to Judaism, who've heard rumours of what's gone on in Jerusalem, but they're not sure what it's all about, Paul is saying actually, this Jesus, this promised savior, is going to be rejected by the rulers. According to God's plan, the people of Jerusalem we read in verse 27 and their rulers didn't recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. As you've been sitting here, he's saying them, reading every Sabbath, you're seeing that what happened to Jesus is according to God's promise. And this is the central part of what he's going to say in this next section, verse 26 down to 37. Verse 32, he says, this is the good news we're bringing to you. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. That's his main point for this next section. So he begins, verse 27, talking about the innocence of Jesus, establishing that he wasn't guilty of anything, he wasn't worthy of death. But then, after the people had put him to death, and put him in the tomb, in verse 29, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, we have one of these great but God statements that come time and time again through the New Testament. And here is in verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And he says, you can go and check this out if you like. There are witnesses to this event. This is a verifiable history. And by the way, this is still the history of the people of Israel. John the Baptist and Jesus and the disciples were all Jewish people living out the history of that nation, which was God's story of redemption. And you can go and check with these witnesses. And they've told us about what happened. So this is a story you can verify. Jesus was rejected by the rulers, but raised by God and seen by his disciples. But not only that, as he moves into verse, 30, verse 32, he shows how this, was going to be prof- how this had been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. He says, we evangelize to you. We bring you the good news. We proclaim to you the good news. That this is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. God raising Jesus. That's the defining moment in history. Jesus coming. Jesus being put to death. And Jesus being raised from the grave by God. He goes on to show how this is proclaimed in the scriptures. He quotes. And you probably have the same footnotes I do. Saying where everything comes from. To make it easy. He quotes from the second Psalm. Verse 7. Today you are my son. Today I have become your father. He affirms Jesus' identity as God's chosen son. This innocent, completely guiltless man who was put to death is God's son, God's promised savior for Israel. That's who Jesus is. And then he says what happened to him is part of God's plan all along as well. And he says, what he says essentially by, in verse 34 is that God, we, can, we know God raised him from the dead because that's promised in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55 verse 3, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And he says one of those blessings, going on to say, was that you will not let your holy one see decay. Psalm 16 verse 10, that's the promise he's referring to. He says that didn't apply to David he explains in verses 36 and verses 37 David fulfilled his time as king then he died like everyone does he was put in a tomb and his body decayed so that promise to him doesn't apply to David it applies to this promised coming savior and we know he was raised again by the eyewitnesses and we see that that promise applies to him we know Jesus was raised again from the dead it's proved by eyewitnesses And it's promised in the Old Testament scriptures. We have this certainty that this innocent man, this son of God, was God's promised savior who has been raised from the dead. And note throughout this section, it is also God still acting graciously to his people. He promises this descendant. He inspires the scriptures that will show how this descendant is to rise from the dead. And he is the one who raises Jesus from the dead, from the grave. This is the central point of the message of salvation that we read, that Paul tells them about, verse 26. To us, it has come this message of salvation. So then Paul says, well, that's an amazing message. This Jesus is the promised Savior, the awaited person that we've all been waiting through for all of our history. It has finally come. He was rejected, he was killed, but God raised him up from the dead. So what does that mean for you now? And he says two things, verse 38. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified, set free from everything you could not be set free or justified from by the law of Moses. He makes it very clear it is through this man, through this Jesus, that we have the forgiveness of sins. We're all sitting here saying to them, we've listened to the law, we've listened to the prophets, but that is not going to save us. That does not bring us forgiveness of sins. What Tricia described earlier, the work of the high priest, that is not sufficient for forgiveness of sins. It comes only through this Jesus. And not only that, but only through this Jesus Jesus, Is our relationship restored to God? We're made right. We're justified. Everything the law can't set us free from, our own sinful tendency, has been done by Jesus. Only through him. We read Romans 8, 3-4. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. The law was powerless to rescue us. Why? Because as the history of the people of Israel that Paul has referred to briefly shows, we cannot live up to the standards of the law. It's powerless to rescue us and we're powerless to live it out and be justified before God because of our sinful weakness. So God by sending his own son as a man to be a sin offering, condemns all that, deals with sin, gives us forgiveness, and restores our relationship with God because he meets all the righteous requirements of the law. They're fully met, and they're fully met in us through Christ. So now we're restored to relationship to God. And so Paul tells them, sin has been dealt with. The law's requirements have been met. And who's this available for? Looking out to these Jews, these God-fearers who somehow know that the God of Israel is the true God but don't want to take all the steps, don't want to get circumcised, don't want to go that far. And he's saying it to these Gentiles who've actually become circumcised and are dutifully following the law. He says, who is this available to? You guys? Yes, but to everyone who believes. Verse 39. Through him everyone who believes is justified from everything you couldn't get through the law. Everyone. He completely opens it up to the Gentile God-fearers listening, thinking, I don't want to be a Jew because of all the extra stuff. And they're hearing for the first time, actually, that won't have got you anywhere anyway. This is God's good news, not just to his people. God's gracious dealings in Christ suddenly expands out To the whole of creation, everyone who believes can respond to this message is what Paul is saying. This is a gracious gospel because it comes to all of us. Anyone who has faith that God's promised Savior is Jesus and that in him alone is forgiveness of sins and a restored relationship with God can respond to this message of grace. God's grace in that sense is unconditioned. Not unconditional, it's unconditioned. It doesn't matter if you're sitting there as rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, as Paul will go on to explain in Romans and Galatians as well. It doesn't matter who we are, we can come to God through Christ. But this, I think, is where the challenge comes for us, particularly this morning. God's grace is not not dependent on who we are, but receiving it, does depend on our response. God's grace is conditional in that sense. God's grace requires a response. And he says this with a very stern warning, verse 40 and 41. Take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Now, I don't know what's happening at this point in Paul's message, but I can imagine as we may be looking between the lines a bit and seeing what happens next week when they invite him back and the synagogue rulers get very angry because Gentiles come to listen, I can imagine that they're not too thrilled at this point of the message, at least the rulers. Some people follow him as we'll see in a minute. Because what's he saying? He's saying that law that they venerated so highly was in, effect, was in fact ineffectual. It couldn't bring the salvation that they thought they had as Jewish people. And he's telling them that there is this promised Savior who is now making this all available to everyone, not just the Jews sat in that synagogue, not just the Gentiles who took the step of being circumcised, not just the Gentiles who came along fearing God to listen. Paul is saying, this is a game changer. Jesus shows us the fullness of God's grace. God has always graciously dealt with us right from the days of choosing Abraham, that nobody wandering in the desert, right through the people of Israel being in Egypt, being taken out of Egypt, given a land, given judges, kings. But now God's grace is open to everyone, not just us. And I can imagine the synagogue rulers shifting in their seats and grumbling and getting ready to kick him out. And it says they leave at that point. And then the synagogue is dismissed. So perhaps they were invited to leave very quickly. Because Paul was changing the message they had. The message they had was become a Jew, work hard, obey the law completely, and we will be accepted by God. And Paul was saying, actually, it's open to all who believe. But it still requires a response. We have to respond to it. There is nothing prior of worth in ourselves that we can do to receive that gift. But God does indeed expect something in return for his gift. Now we struggle with that because we think if I give a gift expecting a return, it's not really a gift. But that's because that's how we do gifts. The ancient world didn't do gifts that way. When you gave a gift, people knew there was an obligation that went with it. And God has given us a gift that has an obligation with it. And that's a response to follow him as Paul tells them. He says, don't be like the people. And he quotes again Habakkuk 1.5. And it's amazing to me that Paul knew all these scriptures to call them to mind. He quotes Habakkuk 1.5, which talks about how in the days of Judah, um, they were saying, well, we're fine, we're the people of God. We're Israel. God will never let anything happen to us. And Habakkuk says, well, actually, see that lot over there, the Babylonians? They're on their way, and I'm going to use them, the holy God, to punish you lot, because you have wandered from my paths. And they're saying, no, 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 God can't possibly use them. They're far too wicked. But God says, no, that's what I'm going to do. And Paul says, as it says there, look, you scoffers. In the Hebrew version, it says, look, among the nations, wonder, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe. And Paul says, actually, this is exactly what will happen to you if you ignore this warning to turn to God. The same thing that happened to the, to the Jewish people back then will happen to you now. You will perish. And so we have a message of grace, yes, a message of salvation that we can't earn ever, but it requires a response from us. Paul says, ignore it at your own peril. You cannot laugh it off. You must respond. Then we read verse 42 to 43, that as Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue, some of the people invited them to speak further. And that when the congregation was let out, many of the Jews, it says verse 43, and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged with them to continue in the grace of God. God's grace, as we've seen, has continued throughout the history of Israel and now Paul says continue in it. But that continuing grace of God requires an ongoing response from us. It's not a one-time ticket to heaven. I've stamped my passport, now I've got the visa for heaven. It's an ongoing response. And Paul says, don't neglect it, don't ignore it. Paul's word of encouragement, which he's invited to speak at the beginning, where it says, brothers, if you have a word of encouragement, it's a good thing it wasn't a message of encouragement, because that would have gone on even longer. It was just a word. In that one word of encouragement, he reminds them, of God's grace, but says now you must respond to this new revelation which is in Christ, the promised Savior to Israel and to the whole world. And he says to them in verse 26, this message has come to us this morning in this synagogue, or afternoon, I don't know. But it's come to us today in Abbey Church. It's still relevant here this morning. Are we still responding to God's grace? Maybe for the first time we need to do that. Hebrews 2.3 tells us, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? How can we escape if we ignore this promised Savior, who only in him is found forgiveness of sins and a restored relationship with God? But not only that, as believers, which probably the majority of us are, if not all, we have to continue responding to God's grace. We cannot ignore it. And as we will see as the story goes on in the next week, Paul knew these believers who'd started to follow him and Barnabas were going to be challenged to give up on this grace. Because next week there's a big hullabaloo and they're kicked out and they say, right, we're off to the Gentiles. And I think as believers we're always being challenged to give up on God's grace or to not respond to it, to live our own lives. God's grace requires an ongoing response. Titus 2.11, which says that God's grace, which I read earlier, that says God's grace has appeared to the world, bringing salvation. It goes on in verse 12 to say that same grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to live upright and godly lives. Romans 8.4, I didn't quite finish the verse, says this, that same, uh, when God, dealt with everything the law couldn't do, it says, who does that come to? It comes to those who don't live anymore according to the flesh, but live according to the spirit. God's grace, God's ongoing grace in our lives requires an ongoing response in us of faithfully following him, of living by the spirit, not by the flesh. As Trish was saying, I like that picture of ears to listen, hands to do, feet to walk in God's ways. That's the response required of us this morning to God's grace that we see throughout history and through especially the coming of this promised Savior, a response of obedient service to him. So yes, God's grace is free and amazing and unconditional in that we can do nothing to earn it. But no, it's not free, it's not without conditions if we want to experience it, we must respond with faith and obedience to God. And that's the ongoing response required of us. And I think one thing that will happen as we do that is the same thing that happened to those early disciples. As we read in verse 31, it says says, For many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. If we're truly living out the grace of God, we will now be his witnesses to our community. People can't help if they see God's grace truly operating in our lives, but wonder, as we heard from Andrew and Chris, somebody asking a question, "Coming, what do you think of heaven and hell? They've seen God's grace at work. If there's no evidence of God's grace in us, we won't live questionable lives i'm using that from some material we looked at yesterday with the ministry team leaders where we were challenged to live questionable lives questionable not in the sense of dodgy but questionable in the sense of provoking questions from other people because they see god's grace at work in us and our response to it continually no matter the circumstances paul gives them this word of encouragement this is the word of encouragement to us this morning to respond to God's grace, living lives of obedience and faith, living according to the Spirit, saying no to ungodliness, living upright and godly lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which has so much for us to take in. But at heart, Lord, we, we want to respond as we see Paul and Barnabas challenging those who, Jewish and Gentile hearers of his to show an ongoing response to your grace, Lord. So many times we treat it lightly, we take it for granted, or we just view it as an insurance policy. Lord, forgive us for that. Help us respond to your grace with lives of faith and obedience. Give us those ears to hear. Give us those hands to do your will and those feet to walk in your ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.